0: Bring a new book today. <laughs> next week we're starting two new books. <laughs> um, what section are we in? Well, letters. Yep, yeah. we're in the letters. We've done last week. We did um, First Corinthians. This week we're going to do Second Corinthians, and next week Galatians and Ephesians. <coughs> um, Last week we were doing 1 Corinthians. Where was Paul when he wrote 1 Corinthians? Ephesus. He was in Ephesus. Ephesus is here. Corinth is over there. Where was he when he wrote 2 Corinthians? Yeah. He he, he specifically says he was in Macedonia. Philippi is is as good a guess as any. So he's moved on from Ephesus up. It's it's not that... it w- isn't that much time that's elapsed between the two letters. But he's left Ephesus. You remember when they had the big riot with Demetrius and the silversmiths? He had to leave right after that. Um, he went up through Troas on and up to Philippi. And, and somewhere in this area, he wrote Second Corinthians. This is a five-point outline that we're going to be going through as th- this morning, the whole thing in fact. Um, So, we'll start with the introduction, chapter 1. This book, I I, I assume most of you notice how different this book is from 1 Corinthians. And you think, you know, we finished 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, boy, it's going to be a piece of cake, so it'll be just like it. Very, very different. 1 Corinthians is a very well-structured book. Each chapter pretty much is on a different subject, and you know Paul lets you know. Now we're going to talk about uh, spiritual gifts, or or, you know now we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. But Second Corinthians has very little of that in it. I mean, toward the end a little bit. I mean, he mentions you know now we're going to talk about the collection for the saints. Um, But when you start reading this this book, you keep turning the page and keep going to a new chapter, and there's no topic. Paul Paul doesn't Paul doesn't say now we're going to talk about this. He's just kind of going on and on. I mean, you you know that you know after a couple of chapters you say, "Huh, how did we get on that subject?" <laughs> I mean that's not what we were on before. It, it's it's a very different style of writing. Why is it so different? Well, he's talking about his distress of the situation. Yes, it's a very emotional letter. That's that's why it's so different. He he was so worried about the Corinthians. On top of that, he had a lot of problems elsewhere. I mean, you know, we know what happened there in Ephesus. so He's going to refer to that, um, and he, he gives some hints at some other places where he was having problems. But he's so worried about the Corinthians. This it, it, this was not a minor problem at Corinth. This this was um, the whole congregation was at risk. Because some some false teachers had come in, and we we knew this in First Corinthians. Um, that the false teachers had come in, and, and we're leading them astray, teaching them things like, "Hey, there's no resurrection of the body," uh, teaching them that, "Hey, you don't have to listen to Paul. You know, he he's not authoritative," and uh, and Paul's very worried, and, and so he finally met up with. With uh, Titus he had sent titus to, to 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 Corinth to see him to help straighten things out, and Titus came back and for the most part he gave him very good news and Paul is so relieved, and so Paul talks in these first few chapters about you know the suffering we go through for Christ and then the the comfort God gives us, and part of that comfort was the word that came from Titus that you know the majority of of the people at Corinth are on your side, Paul. They're on the Lord's side. They they don't believe what the, these false teachers are saying, and, and Paul. And besides that, they're trying to straighten themselves out. That they, they had, they withdrawn from the guy they were supposed to withdrawn from. In fact, what happened about that situation? The, so that the guy repented. We learned that in this letter. So you know, <clears> Paul <throat> certainly is happy about all of that. Um, but it's just very emotional. Um, all right, so he starts out, Paul and the apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the Church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Now, where is Achaia Greece. Yeah, pretty much Achaia would be what today we would call the, the country of Greece. A little bit of difference. I mean, the, the, this is the line here you can barely see between Achaia and Macedonia. Today there is a country called Macedonia. It's much smaller than this area. And in fact, the country of Greece covers this entire red line. All these cities that, that Paul went through in Macedonia are actually today in Greece. Um, but anyway, the southern part of what today is Greece would be what's called Achaia. Um, Athens and Corinth are the two that we know most about. Of course, Paul was at Athens preached on Mars Hill and started the church at Corinth. Later on, he, he, in First Timothy, he, he mentions Nicopolis, or maybe it's Titus, I forget which book. Um, but um, I'm sure there were other churches in, in Achaia. Paul typically would, would spend his time in one of the major cities, but were, the Gospel would go out from there and churches would be started all over the place. So he's writing to this whole group. And he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, And God of all comforts. See, that's kind of the theme of the book. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, that provides an interesting understanding of, of one of the purposes of suffering in our lives. We have suffering so that God can comfort us, and the purpose for that is so we can then comfort others. It's it's a gift from God so that he's, he's equipping us to be able to help others but who are now going through experiences we've gone through in the past and, and we saw the comfort that God gave us and so now we can help them. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Um, in verse 8, he, he gives a little bit of a history. He says, "...for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia." What city was that in Asia? Ephesus, yeah. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Luke doesn't give us the whole story there. I mean, Luke does tell about that big riot and how they were shouting for hours, you know, great is Diana of the Ephesians. But um, And Paul wanted to go in and talk to the... It's a crowd, and the brethren wouldn't let him, but there's more going on here. And he says, you know, we we despaired even of life. I mean, Paul. Now understand when Paul says we, he means I. I mean, that's typical in all of his letters. Um, indeed, you know, we have the sins of death, and then he says, talking about God in verse 10, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. So Paul, he, he just gives, he, he just says, as far as humans were concerned, we were dead, but God delivered us. So, I mean, he's been through a lot, and that's, that explains the emotional nature of, of this book. And he talks in verse 11 about how they were, would be helping with their prayers as well. Um, that finishes his uh, introduction. So then we go into a, a long section lasting, lasting almost seven chapters about his explanation of his conduct and his, and his apostolic ministry. And this is the one that just... It's, at times it seems like he's just kind of rambling on. I mean, every chapter is useful, it's just, um, but to try to outline it is a, is a rather difficult thing. So in, in, um, in verse 13... He says, for we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. Throughout this book, we keep getting these little hints of the problems that were going on at Corinth. When you read this and you think, well, what do you mean, Paul, you write nothing else than what they read and understand? What else could you write? Well, what else he could write is probably what the opponents in Corinth were saying he was writing that uh, they they were trying to slander Paul every chance they had, and so it would be just like them to be saying, "Oh yeah, to the church he says this, but you know he wrote this private letter to, to somebody I, you know that I know about, and he said something very different i mean just, just causing trouble for paul and the, the, the people the people that were still his opponents at Corinth were real jerks as we 're going to see as we go along they were just they were real jerks, and so paul is trying in, a, in what starts out to be a rather tactful way. He's trying to, to defend himself. By the end, um, he's kind of left tact behind. <laughs> his, 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 he gets really sarcastic in these last few chapters. <laughs> in verse 15, he says... He, here, he's trying to defend himself against something else um, because he had planned, and, and they knew he planned this, he planned to go see them. Let me show a chart here, a map. He planned to go from Ephesus to Corinth and from Corinth up to Macedonia. Then from Macedonia back down to Corinth and then over to Jerusalem. And they knew that plan. And then and then Paul ends up not doing it. Instead, uh, Paul took the overland route up like this. And so, of course, his opponent is saying, yeah, you can't believe anything Paul says. You know, verses, He says this and he says that. I mean, it, it must have been very difficult for Paul to control his temper with these people. Um, so he, he tells about that in verses 15-16. And then in verse 17 he says, Therefore I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Well, that's exactly what the opponents were saying about him. And he says, no, he's not like that. In verse 23, but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. The reason Paul changed his plans and went overland was because he knew that if he came at that point in time, it was just going to be a very painful visit. And in, in chapter two, verse two, he says, For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? Paul's <laughs> saying I, I just couldn't. I couldn't handle it. I didn't want to come and have another um, very painful meeting with, my, with you brethren that I love. And so then he deals in, in this chapter with... Well, first I want to read verse 4. It just shows you what his, where his heart is. He says, "...for out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears." not so that you may be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. That doesn't come across real strongly in 1 Corinthians, but I think that's the letter he's talking about here. That when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was just agonizing over it. Um, Much affliction, anguish of heart. And then he turns to, in verse 5 here, he turns to a subject, and this is the one that we talked about earlier, the guy they had withdrawn from. In First Corinthians chapter 5, they withdrew from a guy who was, what was his sin? The, the torture, just sleeping with his father. Yeah, he was living with his father's wife, yeah. So in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, we, we learn that the man has repented. And so in verse 6, Paul says, sufficient for such a one as this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. I wonder if when he says the majority, he's, he's giving the hint, some of you didn't do it. <laughs> My guess is that's what he's saying. So the, on the contrary. Yeah, yeah. In the first place, even some were Right, yeah, it was a terrible attitude that they had when he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians. Yeah, so now he wants them to forgive and comfort him. Obviously, the man's repented, or Paul wouldn't be telling him to do that. So in verse 8, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Then in verse twelve he comes back to the story of, of when he left Ephesus. When I came to Troas, how, how did things look in Troas spiritually? Open door. It was great. I mean, this is Paul loves open doors. I mean he said there, at Troas. you know, the door open for the gospel. What's Paul's attitude? He can't he cannot stand not knowing about his beloved brethren, the Corinthians. So he didn't stay there. I mean, he didn't use the open door. What did he do? He went on to Macedonia. He went on to Macedonia. Yeah, he just left behind a, a big opportunity. Went to Macedonia. He just could, He had to know. And when he got to Macedonia, what did he find? <laughs> he didn't find Titus. Oh. Um, well, no, I, t- I take it back. He doesn't tell us here. Later on in the book, he tells us this, that when he came to Macedonia, he still didn't find Titus. Here he kind of jumps ahead in verse 14, but thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So, he's jumping ahead to when Titus came and gave him the good news, and he's so happy. Um, Later on, we'll learn that he had to go through some more even in Macedonia. So now... Chapter 3, he somehow segues into a very different subject. The New Covenant compared to the Old. And the way he does it is in verse 2. Well, in verse 1 he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need some letters of commendation to you or from you? Um, I assume that these, guy, these false teachers, and I think there was at least a Judaizing false teacher in the group, um, just because of the arguments Paul was making, <clears throat> they probably had letters of accommodation from the church at Jerusalem. And they might have been suggesting that Paul needed them too. <laughs> Paul says, do we need that? He says in verse 2, you are our letter written in our hearts. known and read by all men. I mean, you think about it. He started the church at Corinth. Those people wouldn't be Christians if it wasn't for Paul. I mean, what better letter would you want than that? He says, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You remember back when we did the book of Romans, I I talked about how there are two two problems that God needs to deal with in order to bring us to where we need to be. The first problem is to make us righteous. Righteous. And he solves that by having Christ die for our sins. And, and then Paul emphasizes in the book of Romans that we, we gain that righteousness by faith. But the second problem is the problem of how do we behave? Up until that point, we've been behaving terribly. Now just because God says, oh, you believe in my Son Jesus, I declare you righteous. That doesn't mean that like we're instantly different people. And Paul explained in the book of, of Romans that God uses the, that it's by means of the Holy Spirit that He's given to us that He transforms our lives. And so here, that's what he's talking about here. That the Corinthians were a letter about Paul written by the Holy Spirit on human hearts. Their lives, the fruit of the Spirit—that they were showing the fruit of the Spirit in their lives—and that made them a letter of commendation about Paul, because Paul was the one that taught the very gospel that led to this wonderful effect. So now that leads him to start talking about to start comparing the um, the old and the new covenant. He says in verse six, "Who also made us advocate as servants of a new covenant." not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now when he talks about not of the letter, what, what, what's he talking about there? The what? The Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law, that's right. Um, the Mosaic Law was a covenant of the letter. So when he says of the Spirit, what's, what's he talking about? He's on with the Gospel now. That, this is the New Covenant. And, it's, and of course, it's the Holy Spirit. Yes, you're right. Um, now let me just mention it. Take a little digression here. There are a number of brethren um, who in all sincerity believe that the only way the Holy Spirit works in the lives of Christians today is by means of the Word. Now, there's no question. You have to have the Word. The Holy Spirit is not going to work without the Word. If someone says, well, I'm just going to sit back and let the Holy Spirit bear fruit in me, it's not going to happen. But but Paul is very clearly teaching here that the Holy Spirit has a, a work beyond the letter. I mean, the Holy Spirit inspired the Old Testament. He inspired the New Testament. But what's the difference between the two? Paul says the Old Covenant was a covenant of the letter, but the New Covenant is a covenant of the Spirit. There is something more going on in our lives than what God provided under the law of Moses. And that something more is not more letters. It's something totally different. It's the Holy Spirit. So in verse 7 he says, but if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of His face, fading as it was how will the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory paul paul's going to use this story of moses with the veil on his face as an allegory do you remember the story about how when Moses would go into god he would come out and what would happen yeah john his face would be shining and then and he would talk to the people and then when he got done talking to them what would he do he put a veil on, yes. And then whenever he went in to talk to God, what would he do? Take the veil off, yes. And Paul uses that as an allegory um, in, in this section here. Um, first of all, he shows that if Moses' face shone with the Old Covenant, a covenant of the letter, a covenant of death, well, how much more would his face shine if he was here today with this the New Covenant? It, for, for indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains is in glory. So you see how the allegory is working. Moses' face would gradually fade after he talked with God. He put the veil on, the face, on his face, but over a period of time it would fade. And he, he'd kind of have to get it recharged when he'd go back in to see God again. And so Moses, so Paul's emphasizing this fading thing. The old covenant itself was fading. That's the point he's saying. And so the new covenant doesn't fade. So in verse 15 he says, but to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. See how he's using that to talk about the Jews now. They don't see the glory and they don't see what Moses is talking about in the old law because they have a veil over their heart. Verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, that's again going back to the story. When would would Moses take off the veil? When he went to the Lord. Yeah. So that's what verse 16 is about. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Whenever Moses went to the Lord, he took the veil off. So, if someone will turn to the Lord today, Paul says, then he won't have a veil over his heart hiding the truth. So he says in verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now this this verse, people tend to take it out of context and and just make all kinds of weird ideas out of it. I I had one guy tell me, you you see there, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the same person. (laughs) That's not at all what Paul's talking about. He's still talking about that passage in the book of Exodus, where whenever Moses would go to the Lord, he would take the veil off. And he says... In this allegory, Paul says, the Lord represents the Holy Spirit. So today, if you want the veil taken off of your heart, turn to the Spirit. <laughs> and so he says but in verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror of the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. See, this is what, this is what Paul talked about in the book of Romans. And it's in a number of other places as well. The Holy Spirit is transforming us. And Paul says we're transformed by beholding the glory of Jesus. Just like Moses was transformed by beholding the Lord, we're transformed by beholding Jesus. It's a very different thing than uh, a ministry of the letter. Now chapter 4 talks about suffering. Um, first of all, in verse 2, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Um, and he's still referring back to the previous chapter, but even if our Gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There are, indeed, there are people who simply do not understand the Gospel. There's a veil over their heart, but it's because they're perishing. It's not, it's not veiled to us. But in verse 6, but God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But then he, he makes this segue here, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Some translations say in clay pots or clay jars. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. Paul talks about in his human body, this clay jar, to all outward appearances, it's just nothing. He's crushed. I mean, just all kinds of bad things happening to him, and he's constantly being delivered over to death, um, persecuted, and all this. But why would God do it that way? Verse 7, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. The whole point of the suffering is so that it will be evident that the power is not in the human being, but the power is coming from God. And so God gets the glory, not man. Um, And then he, he says in verse 17, for momentary light affliction, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So if you weigh it on a scale, the affliction is a whole lot lighter than what the glory is that's going to come to replace it. Now he talks about our earthly tent in in chapter 5. We know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And verse 5, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. In other places it talks about a down, it uses the term down payment, and I think it's very similar in this case. Um, we have the down payment, we don't have the final payment. We're, there's a lot of a lot of glory yet to come. Um, so in verse 9, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And I want to jump down to the last verse. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's a great summary of the Gospel that God made Jesus to be sin so that we could be righteousness. Chapter 6 talks about Paul's service in the Gospel. Um, Working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Um, Then I want to jump down to verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, in the context, I think his concern is that in the church there in Corinth, there were unbelievers that they were joining in in partnership with. Now, a lot of brethren use this to, to say that it's not right for a Christian to bury a non-Christian. I think they're exactly right. Um, this principle has much wider application than just in the congregation. Um, in a relationship that's the very closest you can get on this earth, for a Christian to voluntarily choose to marry a non-Christian would would, would just be to show that they do not understand what their partnership with God is all about. Um, and he talks about in verse 16, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be My people. Um, Paul. In a couple times in First Corinthians, Paul talked about how we are the temple of God, and now he brings it back again. And given that the temple of God was holy, you don't just let Gentiles come into the temple. And for a, for a Christian, we have to be concerned with who we we are yoked with. Don't be unequally yoked with someone that is going a totally different direction. Now, in chapter 7, he comes back to the history here. Um, and he talks about in verse 5, but even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without. Fears within. So he didn't find Titus when he first came in. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. He, wait, he finally waited until Titus got there. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. I mean he, just, he agonized over what to say in the letter and he felt bad about it, but he's happy now because of what? Well, they repented, that's right. Um, down in verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God Produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces what? Death, yeah. All right. Now, we change topics. Now we're looking. um, Paul introduces this brand new topic in our outline. This is the collection of the Christians at Jerusalem, two chapters of it. And so he first tells about how the Macedonians are coming along on this. Um, He says that we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the church of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So he he's giving the the people in Corinth the example of the Macedonians. They were just uh, Paul was just so impressed. They were just very generous people. Um, In verse five, and this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and to us by the will of God. And that's truly where faithful giving comes from. Generous giving comes when we have given our whole selves to the Lord. And verse seven. So just as you bound everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and all earnestness. And in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. So he's trying to he's using the masculine example to inspire them uh, to, uh, to do better in terms of generosity. Verse nine for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So if Jesus did that much for us, what what can we do when he asks us to give some money? That's what Paul is saying here. Then, still on the same topic in chapter 9, he he talks about what God gives to us and what God is able to do for us. But first of all, in verse 2, he says, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. I read this and I just have to laugh. (laughs) Because in the previous chapter, he was using the Macedonian zeal to stir up the Corinthians. And now he says, oh, I've been bragging you guys up so much to these Macedonians. I know you won't let me down. He says, by the way, when I come down there, there's going to be some Macedonians with me. (laughs) Oh my. But I don't think Paul was trying to manipulate anybody. He really believed this about the Macedonians. He really believed this about the Corinthians. And so when he bragged about them, he, he met it. But he was a little bit concerned that they might possibly let him down. So he said, I want you to know what I've said about you, so make sure you're ready before anyone gets there. Oh. In verse 6, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's like the money they were going to give to the poor Christians in, in Judea was seed there planting in the ground? The more you plant, the more you're going to get. And then he talks about God, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. God is the one that gives us the money. If we give it for His cause, He'll make sure we don't lack. That's what that's what He's saying here. Um, and then in the last section, 12 through 15, Paul talks about how this is going to glorify God. this, And at the end of verse 12, through many thanksgivings to God, when the Judeans get the money, they're going to give thanks to God. For who? For Gentile Christians. Wow. I mean, you know the attitude that exists between Jews and Gentiles. This is going to help bring them together. And then he says in verse 14, "...while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift." So part of Paul's motive here was to try to unite the two factions, Jew and Gentile, in the church by having the Gentiles be generous to the Jews. Now, he changes subjects. He starts talking about the ones who were opposed to him. This is a three chapter, almost three chapters, actually three and a half uh, section. And here's where he starts getting sarcastic. (laughs) Look at this in verse 1. Now, I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. That's what the opponents are saying. And in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Those opponents were willing to do that. So Paul was having to fight with unequal weapons. (laughs) They were willing to hit below the belt. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And in verse 7, you are looking at things as as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again with in himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we, so now Paul is going to start bragging really and and he's very embarrassed about having to do this I mean you, I'm sure you notice as you're reading through this that he kept talking about how you know i'm I'm mad to be talking like this this is not the way I should be talking, but he realizes that he he's got to somehow show them that He's not what the opponents say he is. I mean, the opponents were making out that Paul was this uh, money grubbing guy that, that, that um, doesn't have any authority for, uh, for for being an apostle. He's claiming something he doesn't have, and he's not even teaching the truth. And these guys are coming from Jerusalem with letters and all that, and, and they're saying, you know, we're, you know, we come from the apostles, you know. We're, And I I get the impression some of them were actually claiming to be the apostles themselves as we'll see a little later on. So, he says in verse 12, we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they, and he's talking about the false teachers, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. (laughs) That's, of course, a danger we all have. Just to, you know, find some human example that we're better than and <laughs> compare ourselves with them. Hey I'm a pretty good guy. I'm, a lot, you know, I'm not like that jerk. <laughs> but, and of course, this, the, the standard of measure to measure ourselves by is the Lord, not, not humans. But he goes on in chapter 11, he says and "I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. What he means by foolishness is you know, he's going to have to talk like a Christian should not talk. Bragging about himself so that they'll understand that he he really has qualifications. And here, look in verse 4 how sarcastic he gets. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. (laughs) It's just dripping with sarcasm. Oh my. So he says in verse 5, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now a lot of other translations translate it the, the, the super apostles, which I think is really a better translation. I think what he's saying is, you got some guys that, down there in Corinth that, that think they're super apostles. I don't think I'm, a, I'm a, in the least of, uh, um, inferior to those super apostles. <laughs> so now he's going to use human measurements to compare himself with them. He says in verse 6, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge, in fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. That's what they were accusing Paul of. Hey, he's a terrible speaker. You know, Why would you listen to him? Paul says, well, I have something to say. I have the knowledge. And verse 7, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the Gospel of God to you without charge? This is incredible. These super apostles. Were accusing Paul of not being a real apostle because he wouldn't take money from the Corinthians. Of course, what was their goal? They wanted to take money from the Corinthians. <laughs> Let me see here. Um, and Paul says that Paul gives us a hint in verse twelve why he's doing this. He says, "But what I am doing, I will continue to do. He's going to continue not taking money from them." so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be, to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. What he's trying to do is pull the rug out from under these the feet of these money growers. They want to come into Corinth and get paid. And yet they want to claim they're better than Paul. And Paul says, I'm not going to get paid this time either. I, I humbled myself the first time. I'm going to continue humbling myself so I can remove opportunity for those guys. (laughs) He says in verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Terrible. In verse 17, for what I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. He's not going to talk like a Christian ought to talk. This is not the kind of bragging we should do. But he wants them to understand, if it comes to bragging, I can brag, Paul says. But that's not what he puts his confidence in. He says, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. <laughs> More of this <than> sarcasm. <laughs> For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. <laughs> Paul's emotions really come out here. You just And you understand why it feels so bad because those guys are taking the people away from Christ. They're dragging them to, to hell with them. So he, he starts off. He says in verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. And he continues like that. Um, in verse 24, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. I doubt that those guys have come anywhere near that. Five times he received the maximum number of lashes that the Jewish law allowed. Three times I was beaten with rods. That would have been by the Romans and they didn't have a limit of how many times they did it. Once I was stoned. You remember that story on his first journey. Three times I was shipwrecked. We have not a single one of those. We have, we have, the one we have in Acts is after this. So he, so he ended up with at least four. Three times, and, and Luke doesn't even record it. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. So I got, this is not actually a painting of Paul spending a night and a day in the deep. But it, these You can see these guys here hanging on to this mass of this ship and, you know, nothing but emptiness around. I mean, that's the kind of, that, that's what he did, a night and a day in, in that situation. Um, come on and sit down. We're still having a class. I'm um, bored. Yeah, no, go go ahead and sit. No. You not clap the money yet. We have not. Sit down. We're still having the class. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's okay. Um, I've got to finish two more chapters here. Um, all right. That was chapter. All right. That's chapter eleven. Chapter twelve. Um, Paul now talks about something these guys couldn't come anywhere close to. He had this amazing vision. I know a man, he says in verse 2, in Christ, who 14, of course he's talking himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. And now, look what happens as a result in verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And of course, this is a very famous story. I mean, you remember how many times did Paul asked the Lord to take it away? Three, Three times. What did the Lord say? My grace, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in what? Weakness, yeah. And, and that applies to much more than just Paul. We have to understand that when things are not like we would like, and we just think, oh, if God would just take this away, it could be much more effective for Him. The Lord knows better. His power is made perfect, and perfect in weakness. Verse 19, All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you, Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Yeah, he, Paul's not trying to build himself up; he just wants to, to equip them with what they need to fight against those false teachers. So, the final chapter are just some final admonitions. Um, in verse five, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Verse 7, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right even though we may appear unapproved. It's them that He cares about. And then the last section is just a little conclusion. Verse 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice... Be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And he closes out in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Any last thoughts or questions? right. appreciate everyone's help. Boy, these are such flying trips. <laughs> A whole book in one morning. Well, it is